I've got a little bit of something to say before I get onto the introduction, so don't panic. Right. Okay. Right. So, hello everyone. You have introduced us. <laughs> <laughs> That's sort of the cold opening. Yeah. The actual cold opening. That's <laughs> thing we said. So yeah. On with the episode for real this time. Hello everyone, and welcome to episode twenty-seven of the Coca Spiritus podcast. On the date of recording, we can bring you some breaking news. It might not be so breaking when the time this actually gets out because I'm quite slow with the old editing, but forgive me. We do have very saddened, especially long-time fans of the podcast, we're very saddened to hearing the passing of Prince Philip, member of the British royal family, and also the Greek and Danish royal families, as I was informed. He was a very good man, served in the wars, had a long life, long and healthy life, and also spawned one of the very first in-jokes for the Coca's Brutus podcast. So listen along to our fan-favorite game, Conspiracy, in our very first episode if you want to understand the reason why he holds such significance to us. Uh, yeah, I mean, he'll forever be in memory. And as a podcast, we're, we're definitely indebted to him. There's there's no conspiracy about how great it is. And it's a true tragedy. You know, we've, we've referenced this joke so many times. So we never thought just a little offhanded theory would have been so, you know, yeah. so infamous in co-conspirators law. But there you go. And Thanks course, to John for pointing it out. Of course, there's the... Um, island in the i think pacific ocean that worships prince philip so that'll be in mourning in national week of mourning at least i hope i mean national year <laughs> can we have one of those we to get another year off <laughs> but so let's try to get back to the episode so whether you're a regular co-conspirator or tuning in for the first time we're glad to have you on board and i hope you find this to be an entertaining listen you can find us on all major podcasting platforms as well as on youtube by searching for the co-conspirators podcast we've had listeners in over 50 different countries and have reached 37 out of 50 u.s states pretty sure we're in like 42 states now 42 now blime has gone up since i last checked when did you look quite a while ago oh, so that's right, 37 was the number that was sticking in my I've head got, i've got a spreadsheet of all the states and their population oh that is that is ultimate. Got, i think yeah. We've got 41, and there were nine we don't have a lot. Nine of the lowest population. Soon enough, we could be able to do a 50 state US tour. <laughs> 50 countries is mad. That's like a quarter of the world. I know. I just feel it baffles my mind every single time I hear someone's been listening to my voice in a country that doesn't speak English as the first language South Korea, Iran, Serbia, Thailand, Egypt, Iceland, Indonesia, Turkey, Bulgaria, Guernsey, Trinidad, Bahrain, Saudi Arabia. Blimey, that is impressive. Oh, man. A man's oh. always a fun. <laughs> Shout out, Habsi. <laughs> Slightly, if I was to put a bit of a damper on it, it could just be one super fan who's also a big fan of traveling the world listening to our episodes <laughs> in every country he goes to. We haven't even started talking, though. we just took on completely off the podcast. I know, it's just supposed to be a little introduction trying to spread the word. You know me, I love my tangents. But one, one more thing, I'll say any support, comments and feedback are much appreciated and you can get in touch via our new website linked below. So finally, on with the episode. I'm your host, Sir Callum of Wigan, and sitting with me virtually at the Coca Spiritus podcast Illuminati-shaped night's table are Sir Luke of Charlton Howdy there. and Sir John of Chelsea. Good morrow. Both, ah, royal, both royal boroughs, so very fitting for our lordship. And I'm the black sheep at the table, just lowly Lancashire. You say that, but um, I've seen on TikTok today that Wigan is the most booming property market in the country. So That is very surprising. <laughs> uh, personally, who's doing TikToks about property? <laughs> Properties in Wigan as well. <laughs> so the North Koreans at it again, hijacking the Chinese algorithm. Uh, talking of North Korea, did you see the news today? Essentially, Kim Jong-un's come on national TV 
and he said that the country needs to prepare for hardship. And I mean, people on the border in China are basically looking in and they're saying that it's literally 1990s North Korea famine levels all over again. Because the country's closed itself off for coronavirus and they've got no, no food imports from China, which they rely on. Apparently they're screwed right now. As if they weren't screwed before under Kim's rule where he's getting all the food. When he's having to go on national TV to say it's going to be bad, that's when... You know, it's actually going to be bad because he usually likes to overplay how good things are. Who's he warning? The people. Surely they know. I mean, (laughs) just a message of morale, I guess. A morale and also you may die. (laughs) Yeah. Not my fault. <laughs> so now, after yet another tangent, I think this might be a record, even by the co-conspirator standards, for the number of tangents within the first intro of the podcast. <laughs> so I was referencing to our chivalric titles of Sir Knights of the various realms of our football teams that we support. It shouldn't be too difficult to guess that we're once again turning back the page of the history books as we visit the beginnings of medieval Europe. Known as the Dark Ages, this is a period where the revolutionary advancements of previous civilizations like ancient Rome and ancient Greece came to a grinding halt following the fall of the Roman Empire. If you've listened to our previous episodes, we've referenced the Dark Ages several times, building up a sort of anti-hype train with suggestions that this could be one of the least eventful installments of the Cocos British podcast. Because, as historians would lead you to believe, nothing happens. <laughs> or, maybe to be a bit more fair, very little was written down or very few records could be found. So naturally, later medieval historians would term it as such. So it's perhaps spoilt by the intellectual smorgasbord offered by the Roman Empire. The comparative scarcity of historical records in the years that followed its demise is where the name was derived. Coined by 14th century Italian scholar Francesco Petrarca, the term was meant to act as a contradiction to the light of classical antiquity, as he was dismayed at the lack of records that reference the early Middle Ages. Especially as we've mentioned that the Romans were pretty good at notating their own successes, obviously being very biased as well. But a lot of stuff was written down. So this period is believed to have lasted from the late 5th century all the way through to the early the 10th century before we entered the Middle Ages and historians remembered where they left their quills and parchments. It was thought to be a time of warfare and so-called death of European culture as various barbarian hordes swept through the continent competing for control of Europe. In more recent times, describing this period as a quote-unquote dark ages drawn strong criticism from some historians determined to establish that there was actually something that went on, some goings-on, some inventions to be found. They accused medieval scholars like Petrarca of viewing history through Roman-tinted glasses. While we've joked this could be a rather boring episode, could this be the perfect blank canvas for mystery and conspiracy to run wild? In what might seem like a massive contradiction to my introduction, painting the Dark Ages as a period of literary wasteland, I would like to discuss one of the true classics of medieval writing, a tale that has inspired so many elements of storytelling, while also being the source for countless adaptations, from stage plays to heavy metal songs, and everything in between. There's only one character who commands such respect and reverence. Any guesses? Uh, Mickey Mouse. In the medieval times, unless he's a time traveller. I mean, I, I've got a good guess, but I think well, I know who it is, but I'll, I'll let John have a good guess. I don't know. It's uh, Camelot's mate, isn't it? Right, indeed. The man himself, King Arthur. Or should I say the legend of King Arthur. I'm going to be exploring the possibility that this seminal work of fiction may actually be rooted in fact. When was this written, or supposed written? <laughs> Well, I will come on to that. There's been very many adaptations through the years, uh, but there is quite a few historical I say, documents that allude to the presence of a man that could potentially be the legendary once-in-a-future king. Our regular listeners may know, especially if you listen to our podcast on ancient Greece, that I was in fact raised on the Iliad and the Odyssey <laughs> in their picture book forms. So naturally that has inspired my appreciation for fantasy writing something that likely would not exist without the backbone of Arthurian legend. So naturally, this theory is close to my heart. 
So now I've all but exposed myself as a massive nerd, let us venture forth to Camelot, the realm of Arthur Pendragon. I'm assuming you both know the story, or the major mm. elements of it. Yeah, I've seen the cartoon. Yeah, so it starts with a young squire searching for a sword for his brother, pulls a mysterious blade out of a stone and realises that he's accomplished a feat that no other knight in the realm has been able to do, crowning him as the one true king of England. And during his reign, he'd faced many trials and tribulations, um, establishing the chivalric code with his knights of the round table, all whilst trying to you know deal with warring factions, the Orkney clans, trying to um, take over his reign from inside and outside of his castle walls, especially since his Queen Guinevere was having an affair with his best mate, Lancelot. I was just going to say, I absolutely love the idea that it's just this sword and a stone, and if you pull it out, you become king. Like, I can imagine yeah, no. if that was a thing now, you'd just go there and everyone would be like scrapping, trying to have a go at trying to pull this <laughs> sword out. And then people would like their bloody JCB diggers trying to get out. <laughs> it doesn't, because it wouldn't have quite the same sort of divine effect as it would now. We've got, so we've got so much more firepower at our hands before then. I assume that when it was first introduced, it was a very uh, dignified affair everyone's waiting to take their turns have a go oh no can't do it and then Arthur actually comes across it just pure by chance no one's in the abbey at the time he just pulls it out doesn't think anything of it and turns out he's king of England so lucky guy but the tale would end in tragedy with Arthur killed at the hands of his traitorous and illegitimate son Mordred he himself a knight of the round table plunging England into darker times so obviously you'd have to strip away some of the more fantastical elements clearly added in later revisions of the tale, such as the quest for the Holy Grail and the Lady of the Lake, things like that, Merlin, the time-travelling wizard. I'm not sure those are it's very set-in-stone parts of British history, but you never know, since very little was actually written about the Dark Ages that we can find. I like the pun there as well. Yeah, so <laughs> very unintentional, but it's something I say quite a lot when talking about these historical uh, theories. So, as we were saying, there is still an enduring belief, maybe sort of not clutching at straws, but I mean hope rather than expectation that some of Arthur's adventures may have been inspired by real events, even going as far to assert that the legendary king actually lived in medieval Britain. So how much truth is there to such a revelation? So as Luke touched on asking about the age of the text I'm about to discuss, this is where we go into it now, and there's been a few historic texts that have somehow survived from the dearth that was left in the Dark Ages, giving its name. So that's if they even happened at all, as Luke may come on to discuss later in the podcast. But like many historical tales, the legend of King Arthur cannot be traced back to one definitive source, rather a progressive retelling of a story or myth over many years, with different authors adding their own embellishments. Did the exploits of a 5th century freedom fighter leading British warriors against Saxon invaders really lay the groundwork for one of the most widely renowned literary classics? The first reference to a possible real-life figure fitting the title of King Arthur came in a 9th century text entitled The History of the Britons, which was thought to be written by a Welsh monk called Nennius. I love how it, that in this time there's people called Arthur and people called Nennius and some names have survived and, you know, there's, I, don't yeah, think, there's, yeah. I don't think there's anyone called Nennius anymore. Yeah, I was like, calling your kid Nennius is not going to have a good time through school. <laughs> I suppose, yeah, just you'd be maybe you know, lucky your name survived through that long, but... I don't think there's many people called Callum or Luke. Around that Actually, no, because Luke was in the gospel. So yeah, maybe... Luke was. Yeah. <laughs> Luke's Luke 2,000 years, I don't know about Callum. Yeah. <laughs> to be fair, when, when you said that, I was like agreeing with it. And then actually, yeah, I'm in the Bible, so... <laughs> So yeah, in this um, work by Nennius, Arthur is portrayed as a valiant warrior who led the Britons to 12 victories against Saxon invaders. So following on from this was a 10th century book called The Welsh Annals, which seems to be based upon the history of the Britons, crediting Arthur with a great victory at a place called Badon, or Baden, I'm not sure how you pronounce it. 
Now, this Battle of Baden was fought during the late 5th or early 6th century between defending Celtic Britons and Anglo-Saxon invaders. Several sources have described this battle, but without reference to the so-called King Arthur, but it is widely accepted by scholars this was a matter of historical record and did actually take place. So following on from these um, two documents, where things take a bit more of a fantastical turn, is the introduction of Geoffrey of Monmouth's History of the Kings of Britain, which was written in the 1130s, and the first script to plot Arthur's life from his birth at Tintagel to finding resting place in the legendary Isle of Avalon. Geoffrey also included key elements that would later be established past the legendarium, such as Merlin, Guinevere, and Excalibur, the legendary sword. In the 1150s, the French got their hands on the tale, with Norman poet translating Geoffrey's work into French and adding the Knights of the Round Table. Further French romanticism by 12th century poet Chrétien de Troyes expanded the legend, describing the quest for the Holy Grail and adding the character of Lancelot du Lac, or Lancelot of the Lake. While very little in the way of historical evidence seems to be recorded from Western Europe during the Dark Ages, it's safe to say that we can disregard these later reworkings of the story if we want to focus on the more factual accounts. So as I said, that basically leaves us with two documents, being the history of the Britons and the one based upon that, which is the Welsh Annals. So in the history of the Britons, there is, as I said, direct reference to a man called Arthur, who, quote, fought with the kings of the Britons against them, the Saxons, but he himself was the commander of battles basically establishing him as a mighty warrior who led his people against the invading forces. Arthur is credited with 12 battles, the final being the aforementioned Battle of Baden. Arthur's prowess on the battlefield was unparalleled, according to these retellings, writing that there fell in one day 960 men from one charge of Arthur, and no one slew them except him alone, and in all battles he was a victor. So basically Arthur's got a very, very long kill streak in that battle. <laughs> it's not implausible. I suppose he could have just been that good. He could have met with the Byzantines. He just sat there with a flamethrower while they were charging him <laughs> with a sword. Boy, that's, that's a spoiler alert, actually, isn't it? Is it, is it a spoiler? Uh, technically speaking, yes, but it's, uh, so it's a premonition, that's what we'll call it. Yeah, hold that thought on Byzantine flamethrowers. But yeah, this, this Battle of Bane is a bit of an area of contention when crossing the legend of King Arthur with the reality of British history. Because, as we mentioned earlier, the Battle of Baden was very likely did take place in the 5th and 6th century. But the first known recounts of a king of an Arthur, of the warrior Arthur, was in the 9th century. So that leaves a gap of around 300 years. Again, a little bit more premonition there for Luke's theory later on. Ooh, it's all adding up now. Yeah. Like I said, there's no doubt the way that history gets retold, things get lost over the years. At 300 years, is a long time for a story to remain in existence, remain in circulation. And it could have easily been lost to the ages, never to be rediscovered again. Especially when other accounts from around the same time of the battle made no mention of Arthur or his deeds on the battlefield. Despite thinking one man slaying 960 invaders would have been well, front page news at the time, be something you'd want to be... Front parchment. <laughs> <laughs> be being shouted from the rooftops. But on that, though, and there's an alternative hypothesis that suggests the monk Gildas, who was responsible for detailing the battle in his 6th century work on the ruin and conquest of Britain, originally detailed Arthur's accomplishments in the battle. However, again, as well, her legend and history crossover, Gildas chose to erase all record of Arthur in his works after Arthur killed Gildas's brother, Hwail Marb Kaur. And in Welsh folklore, Whale was a long-standing rival of King Arthur's, potentially strengthening this historical claim. So again, it's quite difficult. It sort of blurs the line between history and legends. It's very difficult to establish this hard evidence, but it's definitely an interesting thought. 
And alternatively, again, modern writers have suggested that the details of the battle and Arthur's reputation were so well known that it basically went without saying Gildas didn't even have to include Arthur's name in the works. Just know Arthur was there doing what he did. But I think further doubt is cast upon the credibility of the history of Britons as there is a suggestion that the names of the battles described in this book were taken from a poem written in Old Welsh. Some of the battle names even rhymed. For example, Dubglas and Bassas, Celidon and Gwynon. I mean, it's not really beyond the realms of possibilities the war could feature battle locations that could be strung together in rhyming couplets. Yeah, why not? But I mean, in this case, it does seem rather convenient to be, say, I was trying to think of a few rhyming couplets of places in Britain. All I could come up with was um, Cornwall to Dingwall or Inverness and Skegness, which are pretty far away. So if you're going in consecutive battles where the Saxons are fighting on all fronts, got you right down in the south. A surprise attack in the north. You've got to traffic 600 miles across the country to defend. Surely there's loads of names that rhyme. I didn't want to Google it. Uh, anything <laughs> that ends in B or Ford, Daventry and Utree. Yeah, I suppose. That's a good point. Utree is not a place, it's an operation, isn't it? <laughs> that was heavily focused on Daventry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying out to Greece right now. <laughs> yeah, I suppose. I mean, it's it's a loose connection there, but it does sort of cast a bit more doubts, the fact that you've got these nicely lining up battles that are in twos and they all rhyme. So again, it doesn't really reinforce Arthur's claim as a true figure of British history. And then maybe perhaps the final nail in the coffin to this argument is it's been argued that the author of the history of Britain, supposedly the monk called Nennius, didn't even regard himself as a historian. Instead, his works was, he described his works as sermons, aimed at describing a particular vision of the relationship between God, his British people, and their quote-unquote foreign enemies, a.k.a. the Saxons. While many key figures were referenced during this retelling of British history, they often fell out of the widely accepted chronology, as the author attempted to paint a noble story of British Christianity. So playing fast and loose with the truth seems to have been a common theme in historical retellings, and many um, empires and civilizations were maybe guilty of this, trying to paint themselves in the best lights we've discussed several times over this podcast, Romans in particular being particularly guilty of this, say, crime. But you think in times of war, where propaganda was essential to maintaining the morale of the fighting folk, it's quite understandable when you consider the historic context of these early texts. So Britons were trying to defend their lands against invading Saxon forces. So tales of a fearsome warrior with divine protection could have inspired courage amongst the ranks. We may never know how true the origins of King Arthur were, but it's safe to say that the legendarium it inspired is a testament to the storytelling of early Britons, as the legendary tales endured for more than a millennium. Was King Arthur a historical hero or strictly a fictional freedom fighter? I think it's a difficult question and, you know, whatever the answer is, I'm sure if it was a real king or if it was born out of fiction back in like a mil- uh, million, a thousand years ago, whoever it was would be proud that their story or persona was put into film and starred none other than David Beckham. So they've, yeah. they've done themselves proud there. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I think King Arthur is one of my favourite kind of stories or non-fiction books, what you believe. Um, <laughs> Documentary. Yeah. So to hear there's some belief that King Arthur was actually a real figure. I mean, I, I find that incredible. And for that reason, I'm going to score it a 9 out of 10. In terms of believability, I don't think it's beyond the realms of possibility. I think it's probably a bit far-fetched that he was the King of England, as you know the modern story would suggest. But then again, you've got these French romanticists, all these people kind of making up extra parts of the story as they go along. Potentially, he could have just been like a leader of the local war team or whatever. And Guerrilla fighters. Yeah, he was just leader of like a local tribe, maybe. And he was also a big fan of poetry, so he'd only fight in battles of rhyme. 
<laughs> he picked and cho- he chose his battles well. Yeah, but yeah, I, I definitely don't think it's past the realms of possibility that he existed, just not on the scale that we're made to believe today. I mean, a story's got to start somewhere, and maybe it was Arthur's just a king, and then the rest of it all followed. So I'm I'm going to score it at three point five out of ten. That some kind of that this story is based on a a real person. I do think it's most likely a fictional story. No doubts the majority of the story we know today is fictional, but I think probably based on a, a fictional character like you mentioned, it was a propaganda. Yeah, that's, that's fair enough there. I think it's the, the chances are there was someone called Arthur during those times. They thought, hey, that, I like that name. Yeah. The author just ran with it from there. Anything to add, John? Um, yeah, I mean, I really enjoyed this theory. I think, you know, especially in Britain, I don't know about around the world but certainly in britain you know king arthur and excalibur and all these kind of stories are so well known i'm not entirely sure why to be honest but i think everyone's heard of king arthur uh, it's quite a popular one around the campfire i just think it's because it's had so many retellings and all these historians and poets have reworked it and just basically has just kept the story alive through retellings oh have you haven't seen the new um, latest and most updated version of king arthur the guys added a bloody they've gone and find the quest for the holy grail absolutely madness <laughs> seen the new update. yeah <laughs> it's just one of the go-to but kids yeah. books really isn't it yeah yeah but even before then it would be just told around told around the fires and stuff you think just because mm-hmm. everyone loves to hear so he's got all the tropes of a great story of mighty warrior fighting battles slaying enemies saving damsels in distress also a bit more of an idealised time where chivalry and the code of virtues was widely accepted rather than the barbarous times that seem to have been going on during the Dark Ages. Yeah, I think it's especially popular. I don't know, we seem to like to romanticise that kind of era. I think everyone everyone quite, sli- quite likes the idea of all the fighting with swords and all this kind of stuff and kings and, and the, like knights of the round table. So it's popular and, and I really did, yeah, I enjoyed it for that reason. So I think... In terms of theory, I'm going to go for an eight and a half out of ten. In terms of believability, I don't know because I always kind of fall on the side of there's no smoke without fire. Um, so I think certainly did exist and was probably quite a prominent figure. And I think certainly back then, we're talking hundreds of years ago, it's quite easy for a legend or a powerful warrior for that to kind of be blown out of proportion and passed down the generation. I think as well, just going off that, like if he was a leader of people and you know it's whatever year and you don't know anything about science or whatever, you could. Just if he's powerful, he's just like, yeah, the reason I'm I'm in this position is because I just pulled his sword out of a rock and people would probably believe it, to be honest. So you can That's see why, why a legend yeah. could be created by the man himself, I guess. Or maybe just one of these monks happily witnessing the battle saw a guy pinned into a corner. He slayed four men that re- just down the, the campfire retellings went four, then to 24, then to 124, then with 960. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you hear people today, like they over-exaggerate their achievements as those people that lo- love to brag. And I mean, he's probably just like making it up as he goes along. Yeah, you know, I just slayed 924 people in my last battle, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think even though there's not any, to know, concrete evidence, I think there, there's never going to be for something that, that long ago. So I'm not really going to write it off too much for that reason. And like I say, there's a bit of, I don't know, he's such a well-known figure, uh, so popular, so legendary that I'd hate to think that it, it was completely made up. I think there's got to be some sort of truth to it. So I think I'll go for a bit higher than Luke. I think I'll go believability-wise a 5 out of 10. I'll take that very much. That's, that's good. And I think I'm definitely one of those people who might romanticise the, 
the bygone era is a little bit the whole swords and sorcery and stuff like that just living to living to a proper code of morals and being righteous and just in all that you do so take me back although you're probably realistic you just be a peasant like hoeing the fields and doing nothing very yeah. remarkable with your life whatsoever all the knights of the realm went off on quests and adventures and but i digress i will say as a big fan of classic literature and reading and just the hero's journey essentially is what King Arthur could be boiled down to. I think it's just a fascinating tale and just it's got all the elements I think it could survive the ages with um, all these different authors trying to put their own spin on it, adding new characters, new faces and new adventures. And there's still supposed to be adaptations of it now featuring say, the great David Beckham in an acting role, which is never something you think you'd say 10-15 years ago, but here we are. And it was really interesting to dig into some of the surviving historic texts there were from these ages and how they may have contradicted each other and also the insights the historians have provided with how they guess that certain things may have, might have been retold to put basically as propaganda or to put a more religious spin on the history of England with these some of these monks and for that reason I'm going to score it highly perhaps um, being a bit biased because I like King Arthur I'm going to go for a 9 out of 10 oh, suppose... oh wait I thought that was a believability I may wait for that holy horse you tend for believability go for a 10 out of 10 10, you actually met him down the path. <laughs> <laughs> a good boxer. But I suppose with the believability, though, it's one of those things that how or how much um, weight do you give to the idea that there could have been a, a man who was a pretty a pretty handy warrior that someone just looks like, okay, right, King Arthur, there you go. That's what we'll call him, King Arthur. He was, maybe as Luke said, just a leader of a local tribe who won a few, had a few key victories, defended his just his land from Saxon invaders for a bit. Then as things basically snowballed with campfire retellings and then caught wind of the French romanticists and the story went from there into the legend that's known today. So It seems a bit weird that it's gone from what it is to kind of being blown out of proportion and like, you know, this king of England was so great by the French of all people. That, that I... strikes me as odd, but... I think they were, they were Normans rather than actual uh, proper yeah. Frenchmen so when the Normans invaded in 1066. So they, were, they spent some time over here, learnt our histories, learnt some of our stories, and I guess they really liked King Arthur. They thought, that's the man we should all try and live like. But yeah, it's just I don't know where you get a quest for the Holy Grail to link to us. Just going to go from a fighter defending his lands, which may have been realistically true, to going off to other dimensions, essentially, and finding everlasting life with the Holy Grail. That definitely brings the believability down, even though I did basically discount those sources. But they have just become very much part of the, the legend of King Arthur. So, but it's just trying to bring it back to the main thing. I think personally that maybe it's a little bit biased. There was definitely someone. It must have started from someone. Maybe I don't know. Was Beowulf a real person? I'm like, not saying they're links, but do you think the poem of Beowulf must might have also been inspired by someone's heroic deeds? And there's always got to be. Yeah. So not like like life imitating. Like some you got to have your inspiration from some way, don't you? Well, you say that, but I mean. I don't really think Tintin and Harry Potter are real people, based on... Wow. They're also from the 2000s. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're saying people weren't as creative. I thought you said they could have been more creative back then. Do you think they have been... We just would have been taken more literally. I think. Yeah, as we said, it's easy for someone to say, oh, I've got divine powers, etc., because I haven't been killed on the battlefield. You think a lot of people got yeah. killed. I mean, kind of extending from your idea that it's a real person and it's just been blown out of proportion with all these crazy stories. I, I guess you can 
kind of add into that St. George was a real person. It's been said that he slayed a dragon. Obviously, that's blown out of proportion. And then you've got St. Nicholas is a real person. And now apparently he's delivering Christmas presents. <laughs> you, you've got these stories of... Do you mean <laughs> You have got these stories of real people in history who have been romanticised by the French. Not necessarily yeah. the French, but... Yeah, but then again, on the, on the flip side, a scholar or a monk who thought, right, I've got a brilliant idea for a story. How about I find this king, right? And he pulls a sword out of a stone and it gives him the rights to rule England, no having not started just basically out of purely out of his imagination. But I think it's probably more likely they saw like, there's a blo- I mean, maybe not a bloke called Arthur, but it's just someone who was out fighting and inspiring the troops and thinking, right, we can start a tale based on this. They didn't they never expect it to get as big as it did. It just thought it'd be a romanticized version of British history and then the Normans got involved and just we can thank them for where Arthurian legend is in this day and age. But overall believability, I'm going to go with John. I'm going to say I'm going to go for a five out of ten. It could, it's possibility that there was an original sort of muse for this legendary tale. But now I think that's enough of my literary ramblings. I'll hand it over to Luke to maybe discuss that were the Dark Ages even a thing in the first place? Which could basically invalidate my own theories for having never existed at all, if it is to be believed. <laughs> well, actually... I'll come on to it, but it doesn't invalidate them. It could just state that it actually happened 300 years before we actually thought they happened. So hold your horses. So I've got a quick question for you two. What year do you think it is right now? I think, well, <laughs> well the little clock on the bottom of my computer screen tells me it's 2021. I agree. Because with simulation theory, that could all be a massive lie. Well, according to a school of German scientists, that is a total lie. And we're actually in the year 1724. And I'm going to come on to a, a reason in a minute. Um, I'd just like to start by saying I absolutely love the Dark Ages. One of my favourite authors, Ken Follett, writes lots of historical dramas. And he is uh, very famous for going into very accurate detail. He contacts historians. He does all the research he can and bases his novels on the factual situations at the time from anything from what underwear they wore to what food they ate. You know, he's, he's researched that. And he said when he was writing a book on the Dark Ages, he literally was an author for the first time because he actually had the freedom to write what he wanted because literally he could not find out anywhere from anything what actually happened in the Dark Ages. And, you know, this is a kind of similar story that a lot of historians have found literally almost 300 years. There's no nothing written, nothing happened, hardly any artefacts. Although I will caveat by saying I think this is a very European-centric view. I was going to say, I'm glad you realised that he didn't find much out about the Dark Ages or your expertise have been very much for, um, formidable in the conspiracy game we've got coming up later on. I'd be definitely looking at a double loss if Luke's influence was to you know, reign supreme. Yeah, I think if you go around the continents, you've got North America and South America. South America had their history wiped out by the Spanish. Australia, no one knows about their history. Asia, you've got records of stuff happening in the Dark Ages, but then Europe, nothing. And I think that's the most surprising of all because, you know, Europe is the powerhouse, has always really been the powerhouse and nothing to happen in Europe in a time after the Romans, as Callum mentioned. It's, it's a bit crazy, really. I suppose it's where most of our historical knowledge comes from, mainly just because it's that's how it's been taught in schools. We always tracked it through the way we're doing now, going through the history books from Egyptians, Greeks, and Romans, and now nothing. Yeah. And two German scientists, amongst others, come together and develop the phantom time hypothesis. And this basically suggests that 297 years of history were made up or miscalculated, and you know we actually skipped. 297 years it's very interesting because they did this in the 90s they're very intelligent guys they clearly felt like 
the multitude of records on the Islam caliphate and the, I think the Tao Suming dynasty in China as well. They clearly felt that was irrelevant, but it's, it's an interesting theory. And, you know, this, this theory basically says that we're living in the year 1724 right now. So, you know, all I'll say is um, I'll make some predictions for the future in the next 300 years, you know, watch out for something called coronavirus. <laughs> a party like it's 1724. Yeah. But um, the main guy who came up with this so-called phantom time hypothesis was as I mentioned, a German scientist called Illich. You know, I, I don't know if it's a, a loosely termed scientist. I haven't done a lot of research into him, but the word scientist, I mean, makes you think, you know, smart guy. You know, he's got some useful thoughts, but he is essentially claiming a multitude of things about the Dark Ages. And his first kind of point came up when he was researching the Holy Roman Empire. He claims that Pope Sylvester II, the Holy Roman Emperor Otto III, and the Byzantine Emperor Constantine VII all decided to get together and change the calendar to make it seem as if the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, Otto, had actually begun his reign in the millennial year of 1000 AD, rather than 996. Uh, the obvious reason for this being that 1000 sounded a lot more meaningful than 996. I mean, especially considering that's 1000 AD, so 1000 after the year of law, you can imagine why the Holy Roman Emperor would want to kind of have this attached to him. Yeah, I mean, I suppose that explains four of the years, doesn't it? Explain the- I was just about to say that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> explains four so years. So he's, he's, got, he's got these four years, and then he's like, wait, if they made up these four years, let me do a bit more further research and see what I can find. So Was this like the um, Ottoman, well, the Ottomans, Byzantine's idea of a prank back then? I'm going to quickly change the calendars, the emperor will never know. I just, I mean, I, I know a lot of people, you, you hear terms like financially illiterate nowadays when you say, oh, these people are financially illiterate. But do you, can you imagine in the year 996, everyone was just data literate that the fucking emperor could just change the date by four years and no one noticed. But I, I mean... So you think there's probably a lot of effort to write things down back then, so you wouldn't be bothering writing down the date at the top of your paper every time. Well, you do think as well, you know, the world's so separated. I mean, I actually have no idea what's going on. Like, is South America... I mean, the Incas are almost obviously on a different calendar to the Chinese. They're on a different calendar to the Europeans. And how well integrated is a European calendar in the year 996 anyway, to be honest? So, I suppose it does all boil down to on a daily basis, right? light i do things i have energy when it's yeah. dark i feel sleepy but maybe try to track in between the longer periods of maybe oh it's a bit warmer now we can we can call that a period oh it's cold now we'll call it a different mm. one where nothing grows it's, it's definitely interesting and illig who was a scientist he further claimed that the trio altered existing documents and created fraudulent historical events and people in order to back themselves up um so he claims that the uh, have you heard of charlemagne I have indeed. So he, he actually mm-hmm. claims that the Holy Roman Emperor Charlemagne was not, in fact, a real ruler, but simply a King Arthur-type legend. Further supported by the fact that um, Christopher Lee has a heavy metal album entitled Charlemagne. So it could be Christopher Lee all along. Or there Christopher you go. He's, he's in on all this. But it also goes on to explain that through all of this kind of tampering and forgery, they added an extra 297 years to history. You know, they got a bit too trigger-happy and... Instead of skipping four years, they managed to do 297, which I'm not sure how they managed to do, but there's a bit more kind of technical detail on that in a second, really, because it comes about, I think, 500 years later when it gets a bit messy, because going back to supposedly these forged documents, people are looking at these forged documents being like, that happened then, and then all the calculations become a mess. But essentially, there's also a really inadequate system of dating medieval artifacts right now as well as an over-reliance on written history, 
and these are part of the reasons why these 297 years were added. So the years in question, the years 614 to 911, we know the years prior to 614 were full of historically significant events. There's lots of documented that. As were the years after 911, you know, the Vikings came about not long after that. But he claims that the ones in between were unusually dull, as uh, we've mentioned before. I mean, to drag other conspiracy theories into it, just say year 911 gets my conspiracy brain tingling. I mean, if, if, if ever there was evidence of an Illuminati, it's probably these three blokes that started it off. I, d- I don't know what happened in the year 912 for this German scientist to decide the year when it all of a sudden got real again. There must have been like a major event that happened that year. I, I have no idea. <laughs> but, you know, so going into the technical side of it, there's some big mathematical discrepancies between the Julian and the Gregorian calendars and this further complicates things so we essentially switched to the Gregorian calendar because the Julian calendar said the full year is 365.25 days long and the Gregorian calendar which is the one we use now says it's actually 11 minutes shorter than that so this meant that switching between the two calendars should create a discrepancy of 13 days however there was only a discrepancy of 10 days found meaning that there were three missing days. And given one year was 11 minutes shorter, for there to be three missing days basically meant there were 300 years missing. So 300 years had somehow gone wrong in their calculations when they were switching between the Julian and Gregorian calendar. And they noticed that and just thought, oh, fuck it, leave it. <laughs> to be fair, judging by my attitude at work, you're like, that's close enough, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I'll only erase four years with several pints of mead later. Oops, there's goes 300. <laughs> just leave it. In a maths exam and you're 300 years out, you know, just leave it like that. What if it works for these guys? I mean, uh, I, this was like the, um, the Roman Catholic Church, the Pope, uh, doing these calculations. So, you know, maybe they weren't the best mathematicians, but in these calculations themselves, 300 years were missing. So it's, it's raised a lot of eyebrows for these German scientists. And then going on to that, um, Roman architecture that was found in the uh, 10th century in Western Europe is supposedly too modern for the time period in which it was supposedly built. So it's in too good condition. And apparently if you date it properly, there's, there's no way it's actually from like zero AD. It should be from like 300 years earlier, suggesting again that 300 years was skipped. And through this kind of far-fetched hypothesis, he actually managed to find some more intellectual supporters, surprisingly enough. Um, So Dr. Hans Ulrich Niemitz published a paper in 1995, which was called Did the Early Middle Ages Really Exist? And his conclusion, after all his research, was they did not. Have you got any of this research to back it up? Any little tidbits? I mean, I don't think you can call it research. I think you can probably call it clutching <laughs> at straws. But some of the things he says is that between antiquity and the Renaissance, which is in 1500, historians count 300 years too many in their chronology. And he, he just goes on to say Augustus actually lived 1,700 years ago, not 2,000 years ago. But this guy is also very diehard. The Egyptians being 2,000 years earlier than what we thought, which kind of ties into a theory we've talked about before where the Sphinx is thousands of years older than we previously believed. So he's one of these guys who kind of believes all the dates are a bit messed up, which wouldn't surprise me in some respects because I can imagine mathematicians in in 0 AD getting calculations wrong, calendars becoming all messed up. Switching between all these calendars can probably get a little bit confusing. 
I mean, plus they probably wouldn't have, a, say, a concept of years maybe back then or what constitutes the year. And the way they even recorded dates would be maybe completely alien to what we consider now. So it's understandable to a degree. But doesn't his argument that um, the Egyptians were 2,000 years earlier disagree with his idea that there was only 300 years or whatever missing from uh, between the antiquity and the Renaissance? Well, one, the Egyptians before antiquity. But if you push them further back, does that create even more of a gap that has to be filled in? I mean, yeah, but he, he doesn't really have any answers for that. But you raise a good point. There's there's so many flaws to this hypothesis. I mean, the guy admits himself in his research that a solid counter argument would be that there's very well documented experiences of the Byzantium and Islamic regions being at war during the period. So, okay, facts and logic. Yeah, I mean, basically, I think potentially an April Fool's paper, but you know, you never know. <laughs> but it, it does seem that historians are plagued by kind of a plethora of falsified documents from the Middle Ages. And there was a huge actual archaeological conference on this in Munich in Germany in 1986. So loads of scientists, archaeologists, etc. got together to discuss in a whole day's conference the idea that middle age archaeology was kind of falsified i'm in the wrong profession if you can get the funding to go just talk absolute nonsense for a whole day on university or on university tenure yeah sign yeah and essentially a guy there called horse fjorman presented lots of evidence um describing how some documents were forged by the roman catholic church during the middle ages and these were actually created a hundred of years before their great moments arrived after which they were then embraced by medieval society so this implies that whoever produced the forgeries must have very skillfully anticipated the future or there was some discrepancy in calculating days so basically to kind of conclude this hypothesis is saying we skipped 297 years they're not sure why they're saying there's a multitude of reasons but i essentially think their main reason is suggesting that there was forgery which caused so much discrepancy in calculating dates that when they have gone to switch calendars they've basically messed it up so bad that they've 297 years so i think it's it's basically saying that if they'd have properly done their calculations, would be in 1724 in the Gregorian calendar and not 2021. So, so I don't think it's that deep, but based on the calendar we're on now, they firmly believe that years 600 and what was it, 74 to 911 just didn't exist. So yeah, what, what do you think? Do you think that's a possibility? I'll say, I think there's some plausibility there. I think 297 or whatever is a bit too much you can see the odd year getting skipped out but yeah what do you two think i mean from this conference it's hard to argue because it comes straight from the horse's mouth nobody <laughs> it's gone over my head i think so the guy was called horse who presented this oh, theory. Horse. <laughs> oh that's a class pun then <laughs> right so i can salvage that one but i suppose um in the grand scheme of things just looking at it purely from a linear perspective even if we're say 274 years out it's gonna have absolutely no bearing on our life other than we'll have to change some dates in, in, in every single yeah, record it's, it's just changing from 2020 to 2021 when you need to ride down let alone going back to 1724 <laughs> <laughs> yeah. i suppose it would invalidate a lot of clauses and agreements and many documents and it would just mess up everything as well you'd be like yeah what happened in the year like 1776 and you're like yeah the american uh independence and then also oh yeah the ai revolution took place <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. Because you move backwards, you have to rewrite everything. If we were moving forwards, it wouldn't be as big an issue. 
you just create another I, think we, I mean so throwing that all to, to one side just the, the ramifications of it it could actually be it could be interpreted as a good thing you think we're even more advanced you've done more in less time yeah definitely yeah if you think of that way well as in we, we're not actually two thousand years well, after uh, romans we're we, 1700 or whatever see it's a good thing because it will impress yeah. aliens essentially <laughs> we're actually sorry we didn't actually take we off. didn't actually take <laughs> four million years to invent the internet we only took Four million minus three hundred. <laughs> yeah, exactly. After all, everything we do is to impress the aliens <laughs> watching us. Funny, speaking of that, I, I saw an interesting theory about alien life, thinking that we're basically a zoo to them. They're they're always there watching. We just don't know it. Well, like the idea of that, but you know, was that on Reddit? It was on Reddit. It was an ask Reddit thread, I think. Yes, I read the same Pretty, thread. It was definitely interesting answers. Pretty big cage, at least. Yeah. Yeah. But just to turn it back to the theory, I guess it is a really interesting argument. You can say if you look at it purely through a Western perspective, where that's where the Dark Age traditionally said to have been when nothing really happened. But you think there's evidence from Byzantine, Ottoman, Muslim eras who seem to have done quite a lot in that time, as we'll have and we'll touch on later in the podcast. So it's quite hard to reason with if it was just some, I don't know, de- um, sort of device to make Charlemagne's reign seem more divine and powerful by starting on 1000, which got a little bit out of hand. And they realized, oh, rewriting history is fun. Whoops, there goes 300 years. Can you just imagine, though, as well, the, the repercussions of that? And you're thinking, oh, yeah, whatever. I, I can't think of any good examples, but you're thinking like Confucius is alive at the same time as like the Vikings, but it turns out that he died like 300 years or. I don't know. I don't know what I'm talking about, but <laughs> passing in the night, all these people could have been existing at the same time if theory was real, but they might never have met. They never would have met regardless of the time period. So I think they've been existing their own empires. Historical events. <laughs> I, th- I think we yeah. talked about it before. He was alive at the same time. It was like Julius Caesar. No, I can't remember who it was. It was Buddha and two other like interesting people. Yeah, that, that reminds. Yeah, that, oh, oh, it's going to bug me Buddha, now. Confucius and s- some Greek guy, uh, Plato, maybe. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was a, yeah. Is that right? We're talking, we're talking about in the concept of maths, I think, oh, or yeah, something like Pythagoras. that. Yeah, Pythagoras and Buddha. God, bloody good memories then. Which, like, Picasso only died in the 80s. I always think of him as well old. Yeah, it's, it's kind of strange to think that. Because if you look at his paintings, they're definitely years ahead of their time. Because he was rubbish, if you looked at it from pretty a skill <laughs> point. They're doing way better stuff in the medieval times. But to turn about the theory, as we've basically covered, it's a very, very interesting thought. So I respect the guy, I say, crazy enough to come up with it, dedicated enough to say, well, I don't really have many facts or any evidence to support this, but you've got to believe me, guys. Come to my conference. Well, we'll talk about it there. So I'm going to give it. I'll give it a solid nine out of ten. Also, not past German scientists to be very persuasive, as uh, we found out. Yeah, there you go. And maybe you could argue to be slightly cynical. They would be up for a bit of history rewriting. Oh, <laughs> Imagine the power you could wield, though. You'd never be able to get away with it now. But you think just to dictate, like, say Nero did back in Roman times, other empires just tailor history to paint you in the best light possible. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I don't like that a bit. I want to scrub that away from history. Just. Uh, burn the manuscript then no one will ever find it again can't get away with that now with it everything being saved on the internet but believability wise i think it might it might fall down a little bit for this theory unfortunately just because you've you said yourself that there is evidence of several other civilizations that have documented evidence of existing along the years in the calendar that we currently accept i think the so, argument there is then that again the dates don't align we we might say that there's evidence that china was doing stuff in 600 to 900 but 
does that actually mean they're doing stuff in 900 to 1200 i don't know like when we say china has evidence of doing stuff 1400 years ago maybe we actually mean that was in 300 rather than 600 yeah it just casts some aspersions on basically any recorded time anyway how right could they have been i mean even now how can we fully 100 percent know that we are on at the time of recording the 9th of april 2021 well tell you we're not are we because, uh the year's actually like what quarter of a day longer than it should be so oh yeah yeah it's basically got leap years and yeah. things like that and everything i mean daylight savings as well messing Love up that. So, I mean, as Anna Pui said, he just didn't really have much to fully support. But he's dug into it a bit and he's found that these three guys decided to prank Charlemagne or try either prank him or to say, right, we'll make your empire look pretty cool by living in 1000. And sure, I mean, I can understand them erasing four years when nothing maybe happened, but 300 to basically scrub all evidence of that for the entire, I want to say, effectively the entire Western civilization of Europe is, and for nothing really to exist from then, is less believable. So I'm going to, I'm going to, have to go, it's a nice idea, but I'm going to go for a three out of ten overall. Exactly. What about you, John? Yeah, I think it's, it's a great theory. I mean, just the idea of 300 years of history never existing is pretty crazy. So yeah, I'm going to go, I'm going to go for nine out of ten on overall theory as well. I think in terms of believability, I don't know. I, I I do think it is plausible. I certainly think that the whole knocking was it moving the calendar forward four years or whatever. I I could especially around Roman times. I could certainly see that happening. And I'd also I don't know if this is me just I don't know thinking too little of the olden times. But I I just I, I, part of me doesn't really trust like their timekeeping. I don't think you're alone you, there. You've also got all these arguments where, like, you know, yeah. Jesus wasn't born on Christmas Day in zero AD or whatever. He was born, like, I don't know, but there's there's all those kind of conspiracy. <laughs> yeah, summer, I think. There's also born conspiracy in like Jesus' actual birth there as well, which again just messes around with these dates. But also the fact that Jesus may or may not have actually existed yeah. being the son of God, which is impossible to prove. So I could turn water into wine. <laughs> He's just God, the inventor of Robinson's squash, that was one. <laughs> <laughs> Life is full of every party. That was a kid. It's like everyone used to do it in Nando's. You order a water and you end up with a fun orange. It's, it's my religion. Uh, I have to do this. <laughs> See, I, I don't know. I do feel like even if it was just a few little mistakes happening over hundreds of years, it, it, I, I don't know. Maybe 300 years is an, is an exaggeration, but I, I do feel like it, it's very unlikely. We've perfectly kept time from whenever we started recording it to now. So, yeah. And I don't know. I think it's plausible. I also do think it's plausible that back then we did have 300 years where nothing happened because I don't know. In the grand scheme of things, 300 years isn't, isn't a massive amount of time. And in terms of documenting big things that happen again, it could quite easily get lost. So I'm kind of on the fence. I, I think it's certainly plausible. I think it, that it could have been the case that we are 300 years further back, but the evidence wasn't <laughs> overwhelming. In terms of solid evidence, so I think I'll I'll go for a three and a half out of ten. Unbelievable. Yeah, I really enjoyed this one. Again, I'm I'm a big fan of history, so completely wiping 300 years out of history and saying that you know I existed 300 years closer to people like Cleopatra and Julius Caesar and Pythagoras, etc. That that's quite interesting to me. So in terms of theory, I'm going to score it 8.5 out of 10. Super interesting. In terms of believability, I think I echo a lot of what john says right i do think it's it's very plausible you know you've got places in scandinavia where in the winter it's sunlight for what like two hours a day in some places sunlight for zero hours a day and if you're living there you're like how the hell are you keeping track of any time you can't even use the sun to see when it's like noon and 
sunrise sunset whatever you know i mean i've literally (laughs) looking around me now i've got computer screen in front of me tells me the date i've got a digital clock tells me the date i've got my phone tells me the date and i've also got a calendar on my desk that tells me the date and yeah half the time i still never know what the day is so (laughs) it would not surprise me at all if these people did the same and you know we can say that people in those times had the same iq as us but they didn't have the same education as us and Although there were great mathematicians like Pythagoras, what he considered to be one of the greatest mathematical innovations at the time, Pythagoras' theorem, is such a basic lesson in British secondary schools these days. And, you know, anyone can understand it, really, or anyone with half a brain can understand it. So these people have very plausibly messed up their calculations and the dates are all wrong. I think I'm actually going to go for a six out of 10 because I quite strongly believe the idea that people would have forged calendars to better suit them, better suit their civilizations. Like we know even today, like Japan changes their history to suit themselves. I mean, Britain does it as well, you know, kind of paints a nice silver painting over, over its history. So I'm happy with that six out of 10 and, I understand going off this, we're going to have a game of conspiracy. A game of conspiracy was actually not invented a year ago when we started this podcast, but 301 years ago. (laughs) It survived the ages. It's outlived many generations of the Co-Conspirators podcast. We are, in fact, a reincarnation of the very first Sir Luke, Sir John and Sir Callum, who came up with this on one of their quests. A bit of downtime in a rainy evening in Stoke. Thought right, we'll cover the game and just maybe throw some shit at the wall and see what sticks. Lovely. With regards to three theories, two are genuine, pertaining to the topic at hand, this time being the Dark Ages. One has been made up by the host myself, and it is my co-host's job to identify the one that's been made up, the conspiracy. So without further ado, let's get into it. Can I just, before you jump in, I, I, I don't know if it's worth mentioning because it's not going to go out on the day, but today... Is the one year anniversary of is the it? channel we've created? I'll just have to mention that. To be fair, you can yeah, keep that in now. Let's... Anniversary, the first episode, because I guess it came out quite a bit after the channel to then. But today is yeah, it's, a, it's a birth, oh, birth happy birthday. birthday. Uh, very very fitting actually. That I say, yeah, don't have no, made light of his death, but Fitz Philip dies on the one year anniversary of the Conspiracy Podcast. But if that's proof going to be in a simulation, <laughs> there's been plenty of evidence so far. I'm starting respect to believe. Him, respect him taking one for the team. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> make the Kogus Virgin's birthday a bit more meaningful. So there, that's one for the calendars. So on the rather poignant little pointer from John, we shall now commence with the game of conspiracy. So conspiracy number one: the Dark Ages were named thus because they were just that really dark. <laughs> well, if these three guys Luke was mentioning in their prank for Charlemagne had their way, it would have gone on even longer. Say that again. The Dark Ages was just dark, so it was like some kind it's of like, really dark. volcanic eruption or something. Yeah, hold that thought. Yeah, yeah. You know, you've not been sneaking peeks at my scripts. I mean, you? I just assume that's what it is to make the world get dark, but I'll, I'll have a little patience uh, to quote take that. There you go. <laughs> so, while Luke may be the ones I desire... The second theory for you all is that the Byzantine Empire used flamethrowers to help them conquer Europe and establish themselves as the most powerful faction during the Dark Ages. And number three, the Dark Ages were a social experiment designed by Christian scholars. Want to go into a bit more detail? From the top, remember we were mentioning volcanoes? 
So I'm sure you both remember the Icelandic volcano Eyjafjallajökull that erupted in 2010. Ooh, that was a practiced strange. that several times. Not quite the way doing the Welsh yeah. town on Channel 4 in <laughs> weather. I, could, oh, yeah. I just could never do that. That was tough enough for me. I did have to, I will um, confess, I had it phonetically spilled out. <laughs> <laughs> but that volcano, which I'm not going to try and say again, created an ash cloud so large that planes worldwide were grounded. Apparently it stopped a young Robert Lewandowski from signing for Blackburn. So who knows what could have been that he was park i'm pretty sure that's not the first time we've mentioned robert Lewandowski on this podcast <laughs> shows how many tangents we go off on so but, yeah. but to go back to history historians believed a similar volcanic event plunged the world into darkness in the early fifth century with historical sources describing a fog that covered the sun causing a drop in temperature and stunting the growth of crops and trees and historians have also pinpointed the location of the eruption to iceland famous for its volcanoes so maybe history does repeat itself if you choose to believe this mystery. I mean, if it was similar to Iyafjallajökull, I mean, we didn't really didn't go very dark well, for long, yeah. did it? Here, but I guess it's more about whether the conspiracy exists rather than if it's true. But then again, Iceland was literally made from the land of Iceland was literally just made from like volcanoes exploding. So there must have been some mad ones down the years. Is that not a bit of a dichotomy there? Iceland made <laughs> <a> volcanoes. <laughs> well, Iceland brought green, yeah. green ice. Well, that, that is even That's more a conspiracy itself, somewhere, sure. <laughs> Country conspiracies where I could annoy a few. But yeah, speaking of hot volcanic, I say hot volcanic surface on fire, the Byzantine flamethrower. So known as Greek fire, this weapon was composed of a highly guarded secret mixture, so secret, in fact, that the specific recipe has been lost fire. from history. Isn't that the ingredient of Well, you say that. <laughs> it's a little bit more um, nuanced than that, uh, historians will have you believe. As fragments of recipes have been unearthed in later historical documentation, with formulas believed to have been learned from records kept by the Alexandrian chemists, who again were a group of people very much ahead of their time. So the Byzantine military was very highly specialised, deploying unique ships that carried the fiery compound into battle, where it was heated and pressurised before being lit and projected across the battlefield using powerful bellows. It's also believed that this Greek fire stayed alight even when in contact with water, making it deadly for naval battles. Then later Byzantines would revolutionise the technology further, making it handheld and resembling a modern flamethrower. There's also evidence to suggest they had grenades as well, also made of this Greek fire. <laughs> Sticky, so for some, which is just a flame grenade. I'm pretty sure that's a thing. And some, there you go. Was probably quite similar to a Molotov, oh, yeah, I mean, actually. I guess an easy one to make. And the final conspiracy for you is that the Dark Ages were a social experiment designed by Christian scholars. So as it's been well documented, there was not very much information recorded about the Dark Ages. And that fact, ironically, has been well documented. But it's still perplexing given how the Romans and Greeks are pretty handy with their note-taking. So this theory suggests that the reason stems from Christianity, the prevailing religion in Western Europe, followers had become more hardline, making it difficult to pursue innovation in an age where cries of blasphemy meant to death sentence. Overseas, however, Arab empires were enjoying a renaissance of scientific and mathematical discovery, leading to an age of prosperity in powerful empires. This angered the Christians, who hated the thought that Muslims were at the forefront of a powerful and forward-thinking empire, compared to the backwards view established by Christian scholars. In retaliation, to try and cover up and prevent this work from reaching the masses, they clamped down on historical documentation, basically limiting it mm. and almost uh, nullifying it, hoping that Muslim interventions and contrib contributions to improving civilization would never be discovered, and in part covering up their own creative failures. This would later lead to the Crusades, which were under the guise of taking the Holy Land, but really to destroy any evidence of Muslim invention, maybe try and nick some of them for themselves. So over to you guys, and what do you think? Is that enlightened you? Is it 
dark into your minds, made it feel difficult. For some reason, I feel like I've heard all of them. So I I don't really know what what to go for. I mean, I'll start (laughs) with with the first one. I think I've definitely heard it, but then it's like, have I heard it to describe why the dinosaurs have died rather than why the Dark Ages are called the Dark Ages? Because, you know, we hear that a cloud of dust formed over the dinosaurs, all the crops died, they were stunted of oxygen and they ended up all just suffocating i think that's one of the explanations and then in terms of the of the second one which i've forgotten what it is now um yeah, yeah, I've, flame reason, I've, I've heard of something about flamethrowers and some kind of civilization so you know i think that one's a very cool and creative one to make up you know the map and flamethrowers and kind of ties into john's theory on chemical warfare in persia a couple of uh, episodes ago our last episode and then going on to the last one I mean, there's a lot of detail there, a lot of detail. And I, I know that the Islamic Golden Age was around that kind of era, so that fits in quite well. And you could easily think Christians have, you know, messed around to stop stop that. So I do think that's out there. So I'm actually going to say the conspiracy is the first one and you've modified the dinosaurs story. Okay, John, what about you? Any advances on Luke's thoughts? Do you want to go your own way? Um, well, in terms of any sort of logic, Luke seems to break that down quite nicely and have a lot of reasons for his choice. You're not getting that from <laughs> Wouldn't me, have I'm afraid. That. Um, <laughs> I'm struggling a little bit. Uh, well, I- I'm struggling to justify it, but I was actually going to go for the same one as Luke. I think almost because... There's the theory that the Dark Ages are called the Dark Ages because it was dark. is is so obvious that there'd be a theory about that. But I feel like there can't actually be a proper theory about that. So I'm going to give you the opportunity to get the, the full win and fool both of us. So I'm and going, I'm to, go going to take that possibility of a full win well. off your hands because I've changed my mind. Because I, I, it's, it's definitely, oh. definitely in my mind somewhere that's, that I've seen that before the Dark Ages might have had a volcanic eruption. I've definitely seen somewhere that at some point in human history there's been a dark period from a volcanic eruption. And I've seen to think Iceland as well. And I don't know if this is just reference to when when that Iyafiala Yoko one exploded. You just really want to say Iyafiala Yoko again, don't you? I don't know why I had some recollection that you did as well. But I'm going to go for the third one because flamethrowers, it's sticking out to me. I've seen it somewhere as well. So the third one I'm going to go for. Well, I say we've had a Tokospiritus first. We've had a mind change at the last minute, right before the bell. Potentially nick (laughs) a double win from from my grasp. And I will now reveal that Luke has had a stroke of genius and that I correctly identified the conspiracy. Unfortunately, John... Almost wow. like uh, red herring as the idea of a dark age being dark age because it was really dark. There is actually some, I say, hard scientific evidence to suggest that there was a massive volcanic eruption. As historians have been able to use X-ray research to discover a layer of volcanic ash preserved in the ice of Iceland, dated to around 536 AD, and using X-rays to determine the chemical composition of recovered ash particles, the researchers discovered that the chemical composition matched that of the volcanic rocks from Iceland. And there is also a Byzantine historical entry that describes a massive fog blocking out the sun and making it difficult to grow things. So that there is a genuine 
theory, mystery, whatever you want to call it. I'm still surprised at Luke had the balls to make a last minute decision change there. Unless he was playing me the whole time, thinking, oh, no, yeah, I get a double win. <laughs> never change your mind. Because well, it, it go? uh, never comes in. It's like deal or no deal, swapping the last <laughs> I've, 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 I've read it somewhere. Very surprised. Bugging me. And I was. I was thinking that it was a different time period. I was thinking it's the dinosaurs, but, you know, I, I couldn't stick with it. That's yeah. just a case of history repeating itself. It definitely probably happened for the dinosaurs as well. So just a little bit on the other two. The second one, there's loads out there on Byzantine flamethrower innovations. The Wikipedia page is absolutely massive, and there's <laughs> loads of information on possible concoctions that are put together using various forms of saltpeter, sulfur, lime even, that makes it able to burn on water, and the various different ways at which they could administer it. And cause them to conquer vast swathes of Europe and retake Constantinople from the Muslim Empire. And also, having read this research, I'm wholly convinced that George R. R. Martin used Greek fire as his inspiration for wildfire during the Battle of Blackwater Bay, for any Game of Thrones fans out there. <laughs> and then the final one, which was my, the one I made up, which is maybe loosely based on some facts here that I've thrown together a lot of different influences, like the Crusades and stuff, that suggest that Europe was in a hardline period of Christianity where any sort of scientific um, innovation was decried as blasphemy maybe it maybe it might be out there as from in my head i couldn't find anything to suggest it was such a hardline stance that basically they, they decided right none of these documents are getting preserved we're going to burn them all and make sure no one finds out how prosperous the muslim empire actually was which it was there's lots of great scientific and mathematical advancements like discovering algebra much to the behest of many a math student out there they also apparently discovered they invented windmills. Well, I don't know, I mentioned there's quite a lot of people trying to trade credit for such a useful invention. And very interestingly, though, the Ottoman Empire would come to destroy one of the largest Muslim libraries, which led to so much research and um, historical documentation being lost. For example, Arabic translations of many Roman and Greek texts just completely went up in flames, essentially, as the Genghis Khan's forces took over. But then, I mean, you still see that today sometimes. You see kind of rebellious factions in a country going over and knocking over like 2,000-year-old architecture and stuff like that yeah I, like, oh my god try and stamp your authority on the place i could i could never want i would never want to do that just think it's like it's a very cliche that is history right there it's like it's, it could be so important just to wipe down the quest for power was, but it's ruthless and yeah. i mean that brings us on to our mongol episode next week <laughs> we've been one i think there's yeah out there look into it but what we've sort of alluded to of course of this episode this is where the history sort of starts to converge if you look out um a little bit beyond europe so you've got the dark age where nothing supposedly happened but byzantines muslims chinese were enjoying prosperous periods of their own which was sort of glossed over a little bit but I hope this episode on the Dark Ages has left you both feeling suitably enlightened and our listeners as well. And I shall now draw the episode to a close and say thank you for listening. Check us out on all podcasting platforms and remember to keep challenging the status quo.